Turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're actually not in 1 Samuel tonight. <clears throat> We're in Daniel tonight. Um, yesterday in the men's conference, uh, I was thinking of passages that are related to the holiness of God, especially uh, as it put God's holiness on display and, and then and people were convicted of their sin as a result. And uh, that's, I think, that was the bottom line of the conference, really. What's, what's your view of God, basically, and that affects how you live. And uh, I couldn't help but think of that classic passage, Isaiah 6. Stephen read tonight for us. thought of that passage. I thought also of Daniel chapter 9. It's the next one my mind went to. Um, and uh, because Daniel too realizes that God is holy, and Daniel realizes that, that he's not that God hates because he is holy, he hates sin, and he hates sin so much that he sent Judah into captivity into Babylon for seventy years, and that's how much he hated it. Judah had lived in rebellion against God, blatantly rebellion against rebellious against God for a long time, and finally the Lord said, "Okay, I've had enough." <laughs> Comes a time where God says, "I've had enough of all this." So Daniel chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1 and 2 says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged the city. I mean, they destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed everything, left it in absolute ruins. And it says the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of the king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did that. He was behind that. And then they brought them all the way to Babylon, Babylon some 900 miles away from Jerusalem. And by the time we get to, <clears throat> you go through the book and you see Daniel serving under different kings, Babylon, Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and so on. And by the time we get to nine, chapter 9, verse 1, Daniel is serving under not a Babylonian king, but a Persian king by the name of Darius. Um, Persia had conquered Babylon by this time, and so they're in control. Daniel's been a government employee for all these years now, and he still is, still working for the government, this time the government of Persia. And by the way, those kings over Daniel, they loved Daniel. He was a great employee for him, and he, he did a great job for him, and they loved him. He was a great testimony, a witness for Christ too, but he worked hard, did his job properly, was faithful in all that he did. And, uh, you can't turn a work ethic like that away. And so they didn't. Um, and so what that means to us by, at this time is that Daniel's an old man. He's been around for a long time. He's maybe just over 80 years of age. When he came to, uh, first came to Babylon, he was maybe 15 years of age. So he may be, have been there at this time, 66, 67 years or so. And he is awakened to a great need in this chapter, Daniel chapter 9. The great need for Israel to confess their, for Judah rather, to confess their sins, which had not been done yet, by the way. They were in captivity, but nobody had been confessing any sin. And now that is what Daniel does. Daniel's prayer tonight will help us in our own prayer life also. So let's look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. And first of all, we'll look at the fuel for Daniel's prayer. Verses 1 to 2, the fuel for Daniel's prayer. He says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, Media Persia was the guys that took over from Babylon, who was, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel is looking into the books. These not, are not just any books he's looking into. These are, books are the Holy Scripture. In other words, Daniel is reading his Bible that he has available to him at this time. Now, the, the canon of Scripture was still being formed at that time. And, and so he had so much of the Scripture. I don't even know what all he had, but 
he had a certain amount of it. And I don't know how he got a hold of them either. That's the, the, the mystery. He's in Babylon, and he's in a pagan land 900 miles away from Israel. Israel had scriptures, but of course they weren't obeying them, and they may have been, who knows, uh, if they were lost at the time or what. But here he is far away, and somehow, some way, he has got a copy of the scripture, or he's got rather portions of it maybe, scrolls. I don't know how he got them. I really don't. And it'd be curious, it'd be interesting to know. To my knowledge, Babylon didn't have any Christian bookstores. No Lifeway uh, there. And it's a pretty safe bet to say that Daniel had what very few in Babylon, in the pagan, godless, idolatrous land of Babylon hand, and that, and that is the scripture, some portion of it. Um, as I say, the scripture was still being written. He didn't have everything. But he did have the scriptures of his day. That, that in itself is amazing. He made the effort somehow to get the scriptures. And not only that, but he read the scriptures. He not only had them in his possession. That's another battle, isn't it? He actually read them. He studied them. It says here in verse 2 that Daniel said, I have Daniel observed in the books. In these books, these scrolls, uh, he observed in them. In other words, this is more than just letting the scripture pass under your eyes so you see it. It's insight into the scriptures. He's a diligent student of the scriptures, as 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to be. Uh, it says to be, uh, do your best to uh, know the word of God so you can be a workman that, that does not need to be ashamed, right? Rightly handling the word of truth. So Daniel is a diligent student of the scriptures. He's familiar with them. In fact, as you read through this, <clears throat> be an interesting study on your own to look through chapter 9 to see the, the number of allusions to many Old Testament passages earlier than this. For example, you can find allusions, and we're not going to go over these, but you can find allusions in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy out of this prayer. And 1 Kings 8 and Jeremiah. That'd be a good study on your own to look, to look up all those allusions. So Daniel was a man who understood the scripture, knew the scripture, was familiar with it, and somehow had it in this pagan land. I don't think that the Babylon, you know, had this. In fact, in chapter 1, they were teaching the guys that came from Judah had been captured. Uh, they were teaching them the literature and learning the language of the Babylonians and educating them in the culture of Babylon, not in the word of God. You know, here in America, unlike Daniel, we've got, we're swimming in Bibles. They are everywhere. I mean, go to our library. If you want a free copy of the scripture, we'll give you one. I don't, no one so far has really come to me and said, hey, can I have a copy of the Bible? <laughs> that doesn't happen. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unbelievers, and not many believers even, even ask me that question at all. But in all likelihood, more of us have more than one copy of the Scripture in our, in our home. And probably we have more than one kind of version or translation of the Bible in our home. The question is, though, with all these Bibles that we have, what are you doing with the Bible? What are you doing with it? Do you give it the time of day? We were telling the men yesterday in this conference we had that it was absolutely necessary to cultivate the inner life. We, we all, all, all men all, and, and all women, everyone, has to cultivate your inner spiritual life. You've got to walk with God. And you've got to make the Word of God your daily bread. It's got to be something you go to every day. Now, and this is a priority that Daniel placed upon the Word of God. He, he's got it in a place where nobody has it, and he observes it. He looks at it, he gets insight and understanding into it. He makes use of it. It's obvious his mind is filled with the word of God. Like uh, Mary and Luke, when she uh, quotes, when she has her, her, her saying that she gives, and, and so many scriptures from the Old Testament are in there. His mind, Daniel's mind, is filled with the word of God. What a tremendous thing it would be if all of us here in our church had their minds filled with the word of God all the time. That'd be an amazing thing. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you what? Richly, right? Richly. 
And so we're to have the Word of God in our, in our, in our lives richly, dwelling upon it, meditating on it, thinking about it. And, I, and I, I know all of you know this, but you may remember John Bunyan, of course, who wrote in prison, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. And by the way, he had no source with him but the Bible at the time. That's all he had. And if you read Pilgrim's Progress, it's just literally jam-packed with different phrases from the Scripture, little allusions here and there. You just see them popping up everywhere. It's all over this book. And what set this classic work apart from others is that John Bunyan himself was saturated with the Bible. That's the difference. And, and Charles Spurgeon said of Bunyan, and I know you've heard this before, but I could read this quote every day. He says, said of Bunyan, Cut him anywhere, and you will find that his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. So, and this is how Daniel was. He spent his life in this pagan country, surrounded by idolatry. Uh, in fact, their names were changed to reflect the idols of Babylon. They were changed from God-fearing names to idolatrous names. It's everywhere. Even their own names that they call them were reflected idolatry. And under these circumstances, how was he able to keep from succumbing to the world that surrounded him? He was one who read and studied the Word of God. He stored it in his mind, his, and he was obedient to the Scriptures. And it kept him from sinning against God, as you see in Daniel chapter 1, where he purposes in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. And a character like, like Daniel's is formed by, by the fact that you're influenced by the Word of God. And so he says in verse 2, He's reading along in the scriptures, and it says in verse 2, he's reading, uh, <clears throat> he observes in the books a number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. This, this word that he's reading was revealed by the Lord himself to Jeremiah the prophet. So we learn something else about Daniel. We learn that he believed in the inspiration of the Bible. And because Daniel is the writer of this chapter here. He believed in the inspiration of the scriptures. He believed that it came from God, the scriptures did. That this was a word from God. And that it had its origin in God. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God. 2 Peter 2.21. Uh, no prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men of God, men moved by the, along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And that's how it came about. So the Bible you have with you tonight is inspired of God. It's, in fact, you can read tonight what Daniel read in his devotions that day. You can read the same. In fact, we're going to look at those passages tonight. So the Bible you have tonight is the inspired Word of God. And when you, remember, when you read it, remember, it's not just another book. It is indeed the Word of God. It's a book from God. Now, what was it that Daniel read in Jeremiah that motivated him to pray the way he did? It says he observed in the books a number of the years which was revealed as the Word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, why is that significant, 70 years? Well, as I said, Daniel had been away from his homeland, maybe, it's thought, maybe 66, 67 years or somewhere around there. And now he reads, in the, as he's reading through his devotions in Jeremiah, he, he comes to the point where it says, well, it's going to be 70 years of captivity for the Jews. And, and, he, and it occurs to him, wait a minute, 70 years of captivity, we've been here almost 70 years already. And that, that time may be coming up. Now, there's two places in particular he could have read this. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25. <clears throat> Jeremiah 25, verse 8. <clears throat> it says in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the, of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. He calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take away from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. Remember all those marriages we had? Not known anymore. The sound of the millstones. Forget about the uh, employment. Can you imagine an American going dark like this? Not having the jobs we used to have and not having the daily life we used to have. And the light of the lamp, it says in verse 10, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon for how many years? Seventy years, it says. Here's Daniel reading this. And then look at Daniel chapter 29, verse 10. <clears throat> Daniel 29, verses 10 and 11. It says here, For thus says the Lord, When seven years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back into this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, a lot of people like to use verse 11 for a life verse. Have you heard that? I know the future I have for you to give you a bright future and a hope and so on. But I'll tell you what, unless you want to spend 70 years in Iraq, I would look elsewhere for a life verse. That's totally out of context. By the way, let me point out something else in passing here. Uh, Daniel did not symbolize these 70 years. He took them literally. Uh, and that's what happened. There were 70 literal years of captivity for Babylon. When it comes to numbers in the Bible, the safest procedure is to take them literally, unless it's otherwise plainly stated that it's not literal. The number of 1,000 in Revelation 20, for example, mentioned six times, I believe means 1,000. And not some long period of time that we have no concept of what it could possibly Why not just say that? Seven years in Jeremiah and Daniel means 70 years. Now, what did this mean to Daniel? It meant that the time of captivity was nearly over and the people would return to their homeland. And he knew God was faithful and he knew God was going to do it and that God was going to bring him back. So how does Daniel react? Probably ecstatic about this, right? He's probably overjoyed that this is happening, that they're going to go home soon. No, actually, he's not ecstatic. He's troubled about this. He's troubled. Why? Because he knows Judah has sinned greatly against the Lord, and he knows they need to confess their sins and repent of them, and he knows that hasn't happened yet. He knows it. They don't, by the way, they don't just spend seven years in Babylon, and, and that's the end of it. That's not how it works. God just had them in there for seven years. They're in the penalty box for 70 years, then they're able to get out of it and go home. That's not how it works. Yes, they were punished for seven years, but they have to repent still. They still have to repent of their sin. They haven't repented yet, and that's where Daniel comes in. If we just, just because God punishes, for us, punishes us for our sin doesn't mean we don't have to repent and get right with him. We still have to do that. And Daniel was going to be the interceder for the nation as the prophet of God. What moves him to take this action to intercede for the nation, to confess the sins of the nation? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is what fuels his prayer. The Word of God is what fuels our prayers. That's how it's intended to work. That's why George Mueller said, and I read the long quote last Wednesday night at our, our Bible study on this, but I'm not going to read any quote at all, but that's why George Mueller said, after many years of getting up in the morning and praying first thing, and my mind was wondering and going all over the place, you ever had that happen to you? 
He said, I decided to read the scripture first, and when I did, I would be convicted about something, or I would realize I had something to be thankful for from the scripture, or I'd realize that I have something to praise God for, and or I, or I had somebody to intercede for, and then I would pray over that thing that I'd come across in the scripture. He would pray over the scripture. The scripture fueled the prayers of George Mueller. And that's how it's intended to work. You ponder over what the scriptures say, and then you're moved to make the proper application. And the first application is prayer. So if you're, if you're reading your Bible and, you're, and your eyes are seeing the print and nothing's happening in response at all in your life, well, you're like the man in James chapter 1 who looked into the mirror of God's word and he went his way and totally forgot what manner of man he was. He made no application, no response to it all. And he, he, was, not a, he was only a hearer and that was it. He was not a doer of the word, but a hearer only. So we need to allow the Spirit to use the Scriptures to, allow, to impact us with the truth. Then we act on the truth. This is how it works. You act on the truth, and the first thing you do is pray about what you've read. So the book of Jeremiah, as you know, most people want, don't, you know, don't like to read the book of Jeremiah. But the book of Jeremiah fueled the, the prayer of Daniel we're about to examine. And then secondly, look at the earnestness of Daniel's prayer in verse 3. The earnestness of his prayer. So he says, I gave my attention, as a result of reading the scripture here, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek, to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Oh, that's not a very pretty picture, is it? He says, I gave my attention. Literally, I set my face. Uh, notice Daniel's purpose in prayer. It's just a purposeful prayer, determined prayer, a prayer of, of seriousness. He's earnest. And what he's, what he's doing, he's not going through a mere routine. Uh, he's not doing that. His mind's not wandering. He's fully engaged in what he's doing. He says, I set my face to seek the Lord my God. That's what he says. This word seek is an earnest seeking. It's not a casual thing. It's seeking something until it actually be found, is what it means. Hebrews 11:6. God is a reward of those who seek him. So Daniel's in dead earnest about what he's doing, about seeking God until he's done truly doing business with God. That's what he's doing here. He doesn't take it casually. He talks about prayers and supplications. Prayer here has to do with intercession. He's, he's going to intercede for the people of Israel and nation. He's, he's going to do that. And supplications has to do with, means an entreaty for mercy. He's going to ask God, he's going to plead for God's mercy on behalf of Israel for what they've done. They've done horrible things. And he talks about fasting and sackcloth and ashes. There's three words you don't want to talk too much about, right? Those words are not, they're not fun words. You know, hey, I think we'll fast and put on sackcloth today for, for the weekend, you know. You're not looking to do that. Throw ashes on our head. That's not something you want to do. It's a very uncomfortable situation. So Daniel even puts this, the necessities of life, uh, like food, out of the way in order to focus on this prayer. That's what he does. In fact, he also puts off his normal clothes and he throws on sackcloth. And that's a very coarse garment, a very rough garment made of goat skin, camel hair. I mean, camel hair. You're wearing that. Very uncomfortable. It's worn as a sign of mourning. But think about it for a minute. Is sin, is, when we're in our sin, are we supposed to be comfortable? We're not supposed to be comfortable. We're supposed to be very uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit's convicting us and God's making us miserable and, until we get it right with Him, right? If you're a true believer. He sprinkles ashes on His head. That's a symbol of grief and humility. All these things. You've seen these in the Old Testament before. The fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. It's not a time to rejoice. Not a time to rejoice like James 4. It's a time to, to mourn, right? A time to mourn. Uh, it's a time of mourning and repentance. James 5.16 says, by the way, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man could accomplish much. And here Daniel is a righteous man praying. By the way, in James 5, James uses Elijah as that example of the righteous man. And you say, yeah, but Elijah was a great prophet, so how does he compare with us? He was the great prophet of God. We're just, you know, regular Joes, right, and Marys here. But that's true, but it says in James chapter 5, Elijah was a man of like passions like we are. In other words, he was a human being like we are. And so we have, there's no difference between, the, between either one of us, really, when it comes down to it, other than God used him in certain ways, gave him certain gifts and so on. But we can't use that excuse. The Lord can use anybody. He can enable any of us to be righteous men and women so that we can intercede for others. And by the way, who else is going to intercede for others unless we do it, unless the people of God do it, the church? Nobody else out there is praying for anybody. And so Daniel's dead earnest in his prayer. And then, thirdly, notice the reverence in Daniel's prayer, verse 4, the reverence in his prayer. You'll see just tremendous reverence, just oozing out of this prayer from beginning to end. Uh, he says, uh, it says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, uh, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and, and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, You're the, the great and awesome God. Awesome comes from a root word meaning to fear. Uh, and this is the proper fear that we should have in prayer, the fear of God, as we've heard about so many times recently. Daniel's addressing the sovereign Lord. He says, you're the covenant-keeping God. You're the faithful God. And so, and we know, and Daniel knows, we can count on his faithfulness. And he won't fail us. But notice the condition is to those who love him and keep his commandments. That's just something Israel did not do. They did anything but keep his commandments. But our prayer should be marked for reverence for God, Right? And then fourthly, notice the content of Daniel's prayer. That's in uh, verses 5 to 19, the content of Daniel's prayer. First of all, Daniel identifies with the sin of the people. This is interesting. He identifies with the sin of the people. Notice the plural pronouns in these verses, we and us. How many times? Look at verse 5. Daniel says, who has sinned? Israel, Judah has sinned, right? Is that what it says? It says, we have sinned. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants. Uh, verse 7 to us, open shame belongs. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us, our kings, our princes, our fathers. We have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord. Uh, and and verse, verse 11, the, the curse has been poured out upon us. And verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing, whose sin? My sin and the sin of my people Israel. Now, you know, when I, when I first read this, I thought to myself, wait a minute. Why is Daniel including himself in this? He was, he was a, the prophet of God. He was the man of God. He was such a holy man. He's always doing everything right. This seems totally out of place that he would say this. In fact, look at chapter 6, verse 4. You'll, you'll be hard-pressed to look through Daniel and find Daniel doing anything wrong at all. Daniel 6, 4, in fact, as a government... As a, as a guy who was over the government, and there were three guys that were really in particular in charge here in, in chapter 6 under Darius, the other guys try to find something on, they try to dig up some dirt on Daniel. They can't do it. Look at verse 4, chapter 6. Then the commissioners and satraps, the guys that were officials in the government, they began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Let's try to get him. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption in, in as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Uh, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. They tried hard. 
tried to dig up dirt on him, tried to get something on him, but they couldn't get anything at all. He doesn't even seem to be like the rest of us mortals at all. He seems to be nearly a perfect man. As I read Daniel, I think, what a perfect guy this is. But it shows us some, a few things about Daniel, this, the fact that he identified with the people. First of all, he's not ashamed to identify with the plight of the people. Not ashamed to do that. He's right in there with them. He walked uprightly himself, but he did not place himself above anybody else. You know what I thought of? You remember the, the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, Luke 18:10, when the Pharisee prayed and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the tax collector prayed, it says in, in Luke 18:10, two, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That's his God himself, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other people are, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There is it again, Mike, another reference. I'm not like everybody else in the world, like all those evil sinners. I'm different from those guys. I'm better than they are. That's what he said. And if anyone could have extolled his, his virtues in, in, in the Bible, it would be Daniel, of all people. But he did just the opposite. He confessed his sin as if he himself had been part of the rebellion. He got right in there with him and confessed his sin. It shows us that he was not ashamed to identify with the sins of the people. And then secondly, by the way, Christ identified himself with sin too, didn't he? A totally sinless, completely sinless, came to this earth and, and, and took the sins of the world upon himself. And so it shows a second here that Daniel was not perfect. He was not perfect because although he could be, you couldn't lump Daniel in with the worshippers of idols or with being evil and, and all that, but nevertheless he needed to confess his own sin because he was a man. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, it says, and come short of the glory of God. Daniel's life was pure, it was godly, it was holy, but he was not above sin. No one here is above sin. No one's ever above sin. If a guy like Daniel confesses his sin, then everybody here needs to confess their sin. He identified with the sins of the people. And then secondly, Daniel in this prayer is pointed and direct about sin. Look at verse 5. Look at how many words Daniel uses to describe the nature of sin. He just so comprehensive. Verse 5 he says, first of all, we have sinned. The word sin there, in that case, means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. In Judges 20, verse 16, the same word is used. It talks about the 700 left-handed soldiers who, who were uh, expert in the use of slingshot. And it says they could sling a stone at a hair and not even miss. Same word there, miss. But these guys were so good, they could always hit the target. But... Daniel prays and confesses that Israel had missed the target by a wide margin, the target being the holiness of God. And Israel as a nation had fallen short of God's design to be a holy people. Now, we might be skilled in many things in life, uh, but hitting the mark of holiness always is not one of them. We miss it often by a wide margin. In verse 8, it says it, says it again. They've sinned. In verse 11, it says it again. Verse 15, it says it again. They missed the mark. So the first way Daniel defines sin is by confessing to God that he, he and his people had missed the mark, of, which was God's goal of living holy. They'd missed it. And this should grieve us as it did Daniel, as we missed the mark ourselves. And then secondly, in verse 5, Daniel says, we've committed iniquity. Committed iniquity. That means it's got the idea of bending something or distorting something or twisting something out of place. It's something that's perverted. It's describing a person who's veered off the straight and narrow path. God has a path for us to walk on. He wants to walk, he wants us to walk on the straight and narrow way, and yet to veer from the path is, is a distortion or a perversion of what God intended, and that's what Israel had done. 
The word's seen again in verse 13 and verse 16. So along with missing the mark, sin is perversion, a distortion of God's way. And then it says in verse 5 that they acted wickedly. And that's what Israel had done. And the basic idea here is one who commits a crime against God or even against humanity. Really, what to act wickedly is to make you a spiritual criminal. That's what it means. You're, you've committed a crime against God. And we don't think of it like that. But we've broken the law of God. When we sin, we break the law of God. It's a criminal act against God. That's to be punished, quite frankly. But Christ took our punishment. And then he says in verse 5 that, that we have rebelled. We've rebelled against God. Or same similar term to acted wickedly. Any way you slice it, it's an uprising against God. They've rebelled against him. And then it says, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Now, that's not a separate sin that they turn aside from the commandments and ordinances of God. That's describing the nature of their sin. How did they sin? How did they commit iniquity? How did they act wickedly? How did they rebel? How did they carry out their evil? They did it by turning aside from God's commandments and his ordinances. They turned aside from it. God's word made it clear how they were to live. He made it clear how they were to warned them against idolatry. He warned them again and against, again and again against departing from him. And he gave them obvious instruction, detailed instruction on how they were to live, and yet they turned a deaf ear to God and went their own way. They turned aside from the, from the commandment. John Calvin says about this verse right here, he says, Israel is like a man who stumbles in broad daylight. It's broad daylight, and yet they're stumbling. Why did he, what does he mean by that? He meant that Israel had the plain light of Scripture to guide them, and yet they rejected that light and chose darkness instead. They did it on purpose. Calvin also said the law of God was like a lamp pointing out the path so clearly that they became willfully and even maliciously blind. Israel knew the truth. They were told again and again and again what God expected, and again and again they willfully disobeyed God. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We know the path. We know the path God wants us to walk. If we turn from it, it's done willfully. If we know the truth, it's a willful thing. We're like the man who stumbles in the broad daylight because the daylight of God's word is shining upon us always. We know it. Look at verse 6. It says there, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Daniel says they refuse to listen to the prophets of God. That's a serious thing to turn away from those who are speaking the word of God, by the way. It's not that that the people that are speaking the word of God are such wonderful human beings. That's not the issue. The issue is is that the word of God is being dismissed. God has ordained that the, the word of God be preached by men who are weak and imperfect. That's not the issue. The issue is if they're communicating the truth, don't refuse to listen to what it says. Don't, don't refuse to listen to the word of God. And Daniel says they're guilty of that. Look at verses 7 to 10. He says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but unto us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us. says it again, O Lord, and to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have not, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set for us through the, His servants, the prophets. You see the great distance there exists between God and Judah. Just a vast difference. Verse God, God is completely righteous, completely holy, and judging the, the faithlessness of the children of Israel, and God is completely passionate and forgiving. 
He's all those things. But as for Israel, open shame belongs to us. That phrase is literally shame of the face. Now, shame is normally reflected on the face. So you, can see, you can see it almost. People read with shame. And Israel was an absolute disgrace because of their sin. And it showed, and the whole world knew. You don't think the world knew? They knew. All you had to look at was the city of Jerusalem to see the total destruction. And that was evidence enough. Everybody knew the shame and disgrace that had befallen them. Verse 11 says, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to spring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, quoting the law of Moses. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. They have not obeyed his voice at all. He says it again and again. In verse 11 he says Israel has transgressed God's law. That, that word transgression means you cross from the boundary of what is right and you enter into the forbidden land of what is wrong. You're in forbidden territory right now because you've disobeyed the word of God. And it says, as a result, the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath. Now, what's he talking about, the curse? We've had the curse poured out on us. Well, that's in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 lists the curse, curses and the blessings that Israel was given. You know, if you live a certain way, you're going to be blessed. If you live a certain other way, you're going to be cursed, it says. Let me read some of this. Deuteronomy 28:15. It says here, but if you, it shall come about, <clears throat> Israel, if you didn't, and this is a long time ago, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And let me point out one in particular, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall observe other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a taunt among all the people who, where the Lord drives you. It says, if you, if you disobey me, I'm going to send you to a foreign land where there's idols there. This is, this is what they've been serving anyway, idols, the whole time. God says, you want idols? I'll give you idols. You can live in the land with them, as a matter of fact, and be their slaves. Now, what's he saying in effect here? He's saying there's going to be consequences to your sin. Consequences for disobeying the Lord. And there was. For Judah, it meant the destruction of their country. And it meant 70 years of captivity in a strange pagan land. So we see that consequences of sin are all too real. And then Daniel petitions the Lord in verse 15. He says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. The sanctuary was destroyed. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see your desolations, our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and of your people are called by your name. 
This is a prayer for mercy. Daniel has laid out the fact that they've sinned against God, and, and Mike has pointed out in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Lord is an avenging God. His wrath has clearly been poured out on Judah, and rightly so, it was deserved. And now Daniel is pleading for God's mercy. He's pleading for the restoration of God's people back to the land. He's pleading to restore, take the, his wrath away from Jerusalem, restore the temple. It's, everything's a mess right now. So he's asking for God's mercy. He says, we have no merit of our own. We can't claim anything at all in the way of righteousness. And he, but he knows the Lord is a God of compassion. And he's asking that God will honor this for his own name's sake, that God himself will be glorified. And three times in verse 19 it says, Oh Lord. He's asking God to take immediate action. Daniel was concerned for the name of God. God's name had been dragged through the mud, and he was concerned that the, for the dishonor brought to his name. So he asked God passionately for mercy. Show mercy upon us. You know, when we sin we di- and disobey, we face the consequences, don't we? It's always consequences. And they may be devastating, but there's still the need to confess our sin. Still, we don't just let it go, and that's the end of it. There's still the need to confess our sin and forsake our sin. Still the need to repent of our sin. These are things that we must do, but God is merciful. He has said if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, look at the answer to Daniel's prayer in verses 20 to 23, and we won't. That's a long answer. It goes through verse 27. We're not going to go into the uh, Daniel 70th week, by the way. Scariest sermon you'll ever preach is on Dan Daniel's 70th week. Uh, Daniel 9, 20 to 23, we'll go with that. Now, now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. You think this is an easy thing for Daniel to do? He's weary. After, after working for the government of media Persia all day and then praying and putting on the camel's hair and all that. He says, I, he came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you were highly esteemed, Daniel. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision, and he gives him an answer. Daniel's prayer did go higher than the roof. His prayer got answered. The Lord heard him. Why was that? Because Daniel was a man of prayer. He prayed consistently. He prayed daily. We've talked here about Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, how Daniel prayed every day. It was a pattern of his life. He kneeled on his knees, on his knees it says, three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. Circumstances didn't de- detour Daniel from that. Uh, he wasn't too busy to pray. He wasn't so preoccupied with the affairs of government that he didn't pray. Um, he was serious about prayer. He was serious about the time that he gave to it. it was, he saw it as necessary. He saw the connection between the Word of God and prayer. Daniel saw all these things. It's true. He prayed over the Scriptures. He reverenced God in, the, in his prayers, as you can see. He was thankful. He was earnest. He confessed his sins and the sins of others. And he interceded for people. And the Lord answered his prayers. Is this how you, you and I pray? How do we pray? Are we, lack, are we lackadaisical in our prayers and haphazard and inconsistent and it's just not that big of a thing to us? It's not all that important to us? As you read the Word of God, do you turn what you're reading to prayer and then into application? Does our reading of the Word of God lead to thanksgiving or intercession for someone or confession of sin or praise to God? 
Is that how it does for, for you? Or do you read it at all? Do we seek him earnestly? Do we seek him with reverence? Let's learn from Daniel chapter 9 tonight. Look at the prayer of Daniel 9. That's why we're doing this. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from the prayer life of Daniel. Let's learn from this prayer in particular to be a sin-confessing and a sin-forsaking people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are grateful to be here tonight, to hear your word, to have it in front of us, to learn from it. And we pray we'll just not have another time where we have another sermon and we go our separate ways and nothing happens differently. We pray that we would allow the word of God to change us, to take hold of our lives, to apply what it says, that the spirit of God might help us to apply what it says, and to be men and women of, of the word and of prayer, and that we might intercede, intercede for so many who need our intercession. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.